You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. <laughs> nice. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to episode 19 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Corona Johnnan and David Howe. In a world where primates descend from trees and enter the savannah, they fight for their lives, weak, vulnerable, easy prey for the predators, slow, no fangs, no claws. But the predators are about to find out. Primates have a secret weapon. The same brainwaves that allow them to swing from trees also allow them to throw projectiles. While cheetahs can run 70 miles an hour, primates can throw rocks and feces seven meters. This summer, tune in to find out what happens with one savanna, several hominid species, two legs, one upright posture, millions of years of absolute carnage. Let's talk projectile weapons, boys. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that, David. Uh, so tonight, our guest is Devin Pettigrew, a PhD student at CU Boulder. Devin, how are you doing this afternoon? Oh, I'm doing all right. No signs of the sickness yet. So, so we are recording this episode March 18th. You know, during this coronavirus outbreak, um, it has definitely set this podcast back a little bit. But we are very happy that Devin was able to uh, come in tonight and record with us. Um, you guys have probably at this point are somewhat familiar with uh, Devin. The last episode to come out before this, you hear uh, Devin interviewing with us with Donnie Dust. Um, so now tonight we are giving you guys an uh, an official introduction to Mr. Pettigrew. So, uh, Devin, just to kick it off, um, what are you currently doing here at the University of Colorado Boulder? Well, I'm uh, just getting into my dissertation research. So I've got a lot of projectile points laid out on the table. I'm modeling things, doing some 3D modeling and preparing to throw a bunch of projectiles at a bison carcass. So studying projectile weaponry. And who is your advisor at CU Boulder? Douglas Bamforth. That sounds like a bunch of fun. Yeah. Oh, well, it's uh, it can be fun and also work at the same time. Doug Bamforth is my advisor. Who's his favorite, you or me? I'm pretty sure he's not super thrilled with either of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's my impression. I was there. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. Oh boy. So uh, Devin, as uh, many of you guys uh, probably seen, he shows up on our Instagram a lot. His handle is. Uh, at ar.otlatl, uh, that is at ar.atlatl. Um, he's been doing some really cool public outreach with his studies in experimental archaeology and, and ancient weapons ballistic research. Really fun stuff. So, Devin, what got you into archaeology? What was your inspiration? Like, how, what got you to this point in your life? Yeah, I grew up in the Ozarks in northwest Arkansas, and uh, my family had some property, and uh, my dad was. Actually, both my parents were interested in ancient things, but my dad had, like uh, most rural people, had collected artifacts. So he had these boards of artifacts. He was a big hunter, so we went hunting all the time and fishing, and just he was extremely knowledgeable of the outside world. And so I just 
grew up spending a lot of time outside hunting and fishing, looking at these artifacts and, you know, taking on that, that deep interest in ancient people and started to wonder, really wonder how people got by and, you know, what kinds of tools they were using or their houses like, what were their lives like? Uh, so basically from the get go, sometime there in my teens through scouting and Indian lore and, you know, that sort of thing. I just kind of went right into like experimental archaeology and looking at ancient weaponry, uh, ancient hunter-gatherer lifeways. You know, I'm pretty sure we need to do a tally because this is episode 19. You know, either most of our guests say they either got interested in archaeology by walking plow fields and the other half, it's like I didn't know anything about archaeology, but then I took an anthro course and now I'm in love with it. So... Yeah, I don't think we've ever had a third story yet. But uh, so then where did you go for undergrad? So you got this inspiration on your, on your family's property in the Ozarks in, in Arkansas. And then uh, what made you decide to take that leap and pursue this? Uh, I was also really interested in art. I went to Okmulgee, a little technical college for graphic design. After high school, I spent one semester there and I decided... That's when I decided I actually want to be an archaeologist. So there was a point just right early in my uh, college experience that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And then I went to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. We could have we could have used your graphic design skill after our our ridiculous problem that we had trying to get our art, which you should check out on our uh, Instagram and stuff. So you went to the University of Arkansas at Arkansas, sorry. Arkansas. Arkansas. Fayetteville. <laughs> <laughs> really? Right. It's from the the Ar- Arkansas, the downstream people, versus unlike the Kansas. Who are you the, insensitive fuck, Connor. Yeah. Well, no, it's fine. I mean, they just, none of us are saying it right, but the people who live in Kansas are saying it particularly wrong. <laughs> oh, boy. What else? Oh, uh, well, actually, we'll get to that in the next segment because I, I love that little fun fact. But okay. <laughs> and who did you uh, work with as an undergrad at Arkansas? Marvin Kay. He does a stone tool microware studies. And then I went back there for my master's research. And for both my undergrad and master's research, they, unsurprisingly, they culminated in uh, outlandal experiments on dead animals. <laughs> And with uh, Dr. K, I looked at the use of our patterns on stone tools microscopically. Can I just say the latest uh, experiment that we did with that goat was probably my all-time lowest moment in graduate school? (laughs) What made it low? So remember how I recorded for the podcast last last fall some atlatl experiments with Devin? Yeah. But we, we held on to the goat and we wanted to, Devin wanted to look at the, the bones and see how the projectile points, you know, impacted, you know, just some basic good research, how they impacted the bones. So we held on to them. Well, then we got Dr. Will Taylor, the new archaeozoology lab manager. And he's, we were like, well, let's throw those, the goat into the beetle box. Um, you know, it's their uh, flesh eating beetles. And so we got this whole thing prepped, ready to go. 
and uh, we were going to do it Monday morning. However, no one comes in on the weekend. So what the lab manager decided to do at terrestrial zoology was put the goat, let it thaw in a trash bag Friday night over the weekend. And we got to deal with it on Monday morning. Not in a refrigerator. Just Just out out. in the room. And this was past Monday morning. Holy shit. It's like making me gag thinking about (laughs) you're doing, dude. That's why. No, it's not. No, it's just gross. Like, we opened this this thing up, and like, it just immediately hit me. And it was like, I had to wear a I had to wear a mask. Like, dude, it was, I'm getting PTSD just just thinking about it. And, uh, Carlton. Mute yourself to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was so bad. You think bad. about the Mad Dog and, 2022? Uh, oh, my God. So this is like this past Monday morning. So we're wearing masks. They gave us some Vicks Vapor Rub. And, like, they're like, put it on your mask. You can't smell anything. It got so bad that I just swabbed the inside of my nose with Vicks Vapor Rub. And it took us, like, four hours to clean this goat because we used stone tools to clean it up. Up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised, uh, Carlton, you did not actually puke or show any of these kinds of signs while we're working on it. He he was just a trooper. And then afterwards, he was just standing there in the lab, and I was like, oh, he's going to throw up. <laughs> a few hours afterwards. Yeah, I had a class that night and I was just in the lab all day, and like, I almost puked a couple times. And like, Devin's like, no, no, you'll be fine. Like, just let it air out. I was not fine. I had to like take the rest of the day off and I went home and like took a million showers. Cause like, if I just even thought about that, go, I was, yeah, <laughs> no, but, like now it, it was, it was horrible. And that's how my week started. And then it was, then it was like coronavirus. Like it was just like this a week from hell. So yeah, that was fun. So much fun. Going back to Devin's research, um, so you were saying that you took a microscopic approach to studying usware. Did you do any um, kind of macroscopic usware analysis as well? And could you like briefly explain kind of the difference between the two? Yeah, we did both. Um, macro just means you can see it with your eye, and micro is it's very small. So macro usware is typically, you know, we're talking about things you can see with your eye. It's usually we're what we're talking about on projectile points are breakage patterns. And there are a few different ways. You know, the reason you can make them in the first place is that they fracture in predictable ways. So that also carries over not just from the manufacturer process, but into uh, the projectile stage. When they get thrown and they hit different kinds of, of targets of different kinds of mediums, rocks, wood, animals, bone, uh, they'll break in different ways depending on uh, various characteristics of the projectile, the material, their shape, and how much energy the projectile is carrying. So you can imagine that they break in a lot of different ways. But there are, there are patterns that you can notice in, in how they fracture, and people have tried to track that back to different uh, projectile platforms. And then microscopic, you're looking at on the uh, the macro topography of the projectile point, so what we call this, if you zoom way in, it looks like you're looking at a mountain range or something. The macro topography. These uh, silicate like pace will adhere to the, to the projectile when it strikes something. 
And at the same time, if it, if it uh, receives any damage, you'll have these microscopic particles from the point itself that uh, scrape along that surface and create these striations. And so what people have tried to do, you see these also in uh, knife use as well. And so what people have tried to do is look at the formation of the striations, you know, the shape of the striations, the directionality, and uh, tie that back into tool use. And of course, the only way we can do that is by creating these experimental samples to use as analogs to then look at artifacts. So when we were in Boulder, for, to study the macro breakage patterns, you actually ended up painting the projectile points. Is that the way you kind of studied that? I don't want to give away your like secret if that's like a... <laughs> no, a number of people have done that. We used uh, methyl violet dye, which is extremely potent. Oh, so they were dyed. I thought the shirt was just that purple. And I was like, what? It's also um, medicinal. It, <laughs> it used to be in medicine. It's no longer in medicine, except vets apparently still use it. So, huh. Yeah, back, back story behind that. I was sort of in a group chat with Doug and uh, Devin just sends us a text. He's like, hey, the purple stuff in the back, that's dyed. Don't drink it. Or like, don't touch it. And I was like, well, can I drink it? And Devin Doug's like, or Devin was like, no. But, you know, it, it, it was used for medicinal purposes. So Dr. Bamforth is like, yes, Carlton, you can drink it. It's medicine. So, so it's good for you. <laughs> it's questionable. Um, it's no longer used in medicine. Let's just put it that way. Is it like Pepto's purple cousin? <laughs> it's um, They do use it in medicine, I think, still to track things moving through the body, like fluids moving through the body. But I think it's slightly toxic. So you, you don't want to consume it, Carlton. Do you know, for the audience listening, what the uh, the earliest weapon, projectile weapon that humans invented was? So we can go like in order and then work our way up to the atlatl like quickly? Yeah. Well, if, for the earliest projectiles, you're basically talking about throwing rocks and sticks, right? Sure. Yeah. And then at some point, people probably start throwing javelins. And we know chimpanzees create uh, spears. They create lances, right? Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, uh, female chimpanzees use lances to hunt bush babies. Holy um, fuck. Yeah, apparently they're pretty, pretty <laughs> they're sentient. Which is interesting because the males hunt too, but they, they do it in an entirely different way. They hunt in these big groups and they do these big group drives. And then they, they strategically share the meat with important individuals. And the females do it. They go out on their own. So they're more like modern hunters, I guess. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so, and then at some point, people started using javelins. Don't know when that was. Probably, definitely in the genus Homo. Uh, probably Homo erectus. And the earliest wooden javelins date to three hundred thousand years ago. They're very likely uh, wooden javelins from a site in Germany. Is that Stelmore? That's Schoeningen. Schoeningen. Okay. Yeah. Right. Still yeah. more is later. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 400 to 300,000 years. Uh, so that's a really cool site. There's uh, some authors, lead authors, Wilkins, who's saying these level of points from Africa look like they have impact fracturing from being thrown on the end of a projectile and they're 500,000 years old. 
So, oh damn, sick. We don't know what happened next. Is the problem. So we have in Southern Africa, at sites like uh, Blombos Cave, they have there's a transition that starts around seventy thousand years ago, and you see these these uh, smaller projectile points that are they're different, they're odd, but they they're similar to points that will come later in time. And they've been suggested to be either at little dart points or arrow points. And there are other authors that are saying uh, they're probably spear points. And they're sandwiched between Middle Stone Age, Level A technology. So whatever they were, they they taper off in use, at least at those sites in Southern Africa. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's continue this conversation in the next uh, segment. That'll auto lot will do for this one. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fuck off. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 19 of the Life and Ruins podcast. We're here with uh, Devin Pettigrew uh, talking about some ancient weapons research. So, Devin, where we left off, we talk about a 300,000-year-old javelin from Germany. Then what's next? Yeah, uh, the Schoeningen Spears. Those are really cool. I, I mean, I, we can actually talk about that site because it's, I think it's, it has important implications for uh, you know, the behavior and intelligence of archaic humans. If any of you have hunted before, you probably have some sense of how challenging it can be. And this is something I've wondered a lot about is how the hell did people do this? How did you, how do you go out with a javelin and, and kill a horse, which is what they were, they were hunting wild horses at Schoeningen. That's not possible, Devin, because horses are only from North America, as stated by the uh, dissertation that came out of University of Alaska Fairbanks. So you might need to rethink that. Okay, we'll have to rethink the whole thing. Uh, so I don't know what the hell those animals are then. <laughs> They're looking awful lot like horses. Some kind of equine creature. <laughs> they but nail the, on. Basically, basically, the site is in a, uh, a natural cul-de-sac. So a group of archaic humans, Heidelbergensis, I guess, would, would have uh, driven these animals back into this natural cul-de-sac where they could get close enough with javelins. So there are all these elements of organization, understanding how the prey is going to respond to you and understanding prey behavior that, that have to go into that. So at like 300,000 years ago, they were like corralling these not horses into a corner, which takes like a lot of um, social cohesion and, and whatnot and social planning to do it. So yeah. And that's, that's like older than we think. Language probably. Yeah. And that's like older than we think and kind of ascribe, I would say like really group think or group um, communication much earlier than we kind of ascribe that. Yeah. Complex, you know, exactly. The ability to really organize yourselves and uh, hunting big animals like that, you just have to be smart. You have to, you have to understand uh, how they're going to react and how you can exploit them and get close to them. That's also important because our species continues to use javelins for thousands of years. Maybe they were using the bow or the spear thrower at Lettle in Southern Africa around 70,000 years ago. Maybe not. But then javelin weaponry comes back, it looks like. And, you know, people continue to use javelins and lances today even. So just the fact that ancient people were using that kind of weaponry doesn't necessarily 
make them, you know, less sophisticated or less intelligent than our species, which is interesting. And there's an, an actually a uh, professor here at Colorado Boulder, Paola Villa, I'm probably butchering her name, but uh, she's written a lot about that. So you're saying that just, I just want to make sure I'm getting this right, that earlier archaeologists and scientists thought that because they were using javelins, they weren't as sophisticated or intelligent because obviously that, that meant like they were risky and going really up close, but because modern humans also use javelins too, it might just be that they just didn't have other things or? Well, I think the point is you can be effective with these weapons and people on the Polynesian islands actually use javelins for both hunting and warfare. And that was their preferred weapon, even knowing about the bow, that was a child's weapon to them or a child's toy. So the point is like, really, if you know how to exploit these animals, how to get close to them and animals also react, right? They respond to predator changes in predatory behavior. So if they're not responding to being hunted with a rifle or even a bow and arrow, uh, they're responding to being hunted with a javelin. Presumably, you would you would have a little bit higher success hunting with those weapons. So it, you know it's it, something that continues to be used today. Is this thought that these advances, these steady advances in projectile weaponry, indicate growing complexity, and that's really problematic. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a projection of Western notions of technological advancement onto the archaeological record. Gotcha. Okay. So they're not like, because they're, they're not like completely abandoning previous technology. They're adapting new stuff, taking it forward is, is kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. In certain cases, they're adapting, they're switching to new technology. In other cases, it's a strategic decision. And, you know, with the San Bushman in Southern Africa, actually in the 70s, there, there was a trend where they were switching more and more from hunting with the bow back to hunting with spears for a number of complicated reasons. But it's a lot more complex than, than our just, you know, idea of like steady technological advance would, would make it out to be. So when do we see the first evidence of the otlatl? So that's very challenging. And we talked some about the uh, microscopic and macroscopic use where people have tried to do a number of, of things with that and with uh, the morphometrics, the, the way the points are measured to uh, identify these projectile systems from the stone points alone. Cause you know, most, most of these things are made of wood. Most of the parts are made of wood or sinew and we don't see them. Right. Cause a taphonomic process is wood doesn't last that long. So we're just basing it off the projectile points, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you have to have special conditions for for these organic materials to preserve. And uh, the first instance of that occurs in Europe where you have these outlatal hooks coming out of caves, most of them in France, and the earliest one dates to about 70,500 years ago. So that's like the, the earliest definitive evidence. And where does the uh, term outlatal come from, Devin? Outlatal. That's how you pronounce that. It comes from the Aztec language, Nahuatl. If you make that ter- that uh, sound by putting the tip of your tongue at the roof of your mouth and blowing air out the sides, around the sides of your tongue. That is some intense nerdiness right there. <laughs> so is that So we're using like a... From Nahuatl. We're using an Aztec word to describe something that's that originated possibly somewhere else. Is that just what stuck? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
It's what stuck in the Americas because scholars in the late 1800s were writing about this this weapon in Mesoamerica. So it kind of spread out in the literature from there in in America. Because elsewhere, right, hot lottles went out of style, you know, especially in Europe, Africa, and Asia. They ended up getting guns at some point, and no one used hot lots for uh, probably what, uh, like a couple thousand years at that point? A really long time. The earliest bow technology appears in Europe right around 11, 10,000 years ago. That that date is kind of a little bit iffy because those finds, early finds from Stelmore in Germany, that was in the 40s and they got destroyed by a fire during World War II. They actually got bombed, so little fragments remain. But sometime around 11, 10,000 years ago is when the bow is introduced in the old world. doesn't appear in the new world till about 2,000 years ago. Hmm. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what? David, your, What's that? your thesis is wrong. <laughs> yeah, what was that? That's my whole thing. Just kidding, Carlton. Um, yeah, I was trying to think of like a monologue that Cortez was writing to King Philip of Spain in my head and Antonio Banderas's voice. And that, that's what my mind was. <laughs> I write to you today because we find the savages who use the atlatl is what they call it. <laughs> but they didn't, uh, they would have had, that's the funniest thing to me is that like every other culture in Eurasia would have had a word for that at some point, but it just disappeared. And then they're like, whoa, these people are just throwing sticks at each other. And it's like, "Mm, no, you did too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, didn't Devin, like indigenous populations in Australia, they never developed the bow, right? So when they were, came into contact with Europeans, they were still like slaying kangaroos with otlottles, right? Yeah. And the same way in the Americas, the indigenous Australians had a number of different terms for it. You know, they had a number of different languages and cultures, but usually over there nowadays we call it Woomera, which is one of one of their words for it. They didn't adopt the bow. The bow was present in northern Australia, just off the uh, tip of, uh, I can't remember what the peninsula is called, that juts out towards Papua New Guinea. So they knew about the bow, at least in northern Australia, but they didn't adopt it. Um, and in various places in Australia, they also weren't using Woomeras. They were using javelins. Australia's dope. Huh. So it was just like, not, not for me, fam. <laughs> yeah. They just, it wasn't something they, they apparently needed the bow and arrow. Yeah. Tan, Tanzania is really, Tanzania. Tanzania is really cool too. Cause they were using, uh, javelins there exclusively, uh, no woomeras. Hmm. So, and I know you're familiar with this, but like we know that Paleolithic people in the Americas were using otlottles to uh, knock out megafauna, right? That's very likely, yeah. Uh, the oldest atlatl that's preserved with preserved wood, it's complete, is from Nevada and it's about 8,000 years old. There are some hooks that are made of mammoth ivory from Florida rivers. They appear to be atlatl hooks you know they appear to be paleo but but we can't say for sure paleo indians were using the atlatl but they probably were they had mammoths down there in florida <laughs> yes they did hmm. and uh i try to, i want you to talk about george frizen Devin, and uh his experiments with atlatls and modern 
African elephants. But uh, just to set the scene, can you uh, can you tell our listeners about your uh, one of your first experiences with George Frizen when he was giving a, a conference talk at Plains? You know which one I'm talking about. I know that one actually. I, have, I think I have a more interesting early experience where. What does he say? Uh, hocus pocus in that one? No, he was not quite as old as he is now. At Plains, he he uh, was talking about the powers Red Ochre Cory and you know evidence of ritual, and he said, "Oh, you can really say is there was some major hocus pocus going on." <laughs> and of course, he was like twenty minutes beyond his time limit, right? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think for me and most people in the audience, it's like. I don't want to hear other people talk. Just you just stand up there. He's basically Grand Moff Frizen at this point. You know? Grand Moff. <laughs> Did I ever tell you guys the story of the time I got frizzened on here on the podcast? I don't think you told on the podcast, but I love this story. Well, Devin, was that your whole story? Continue yours first. But. The other experience I had was when I was talking to him at a conference and afterwards and he was talking about his elephant darts that he used to yeah. to to uh, dart elephant carcasses in Africa. And he told me, people really don't understand the power of this thing. And then he like leaned in, like got real close. He's like, I could absolutely nail you to the wall with that elephant. Out. And I was like, <laughs> Jesus <"Lean> Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and just so our audience knows, George Frizen is like 90 something years old, first Wyoming state archaeologist, developed the program that me, Connor, and David went to. He's just like a legend. And like he fought in World War II. Like they dropped him on the beaches of Normandy. He was on horseback, full plate armor with antlers sticking out of his helm. Like he's just a badass. (laughs) Wait, what? It's this historical fact. No. Oh. They dropped George Frizen off on Omaha Beach on a horse in full plate mail with antlers sticking out like he was Stannis Baratheon. Like, swear to God. No. Wait, that's real? No, of course no. it's not real. That's the most oh, I was like, that's like Mad Jack Churchill stuff. Uh, he, I had to give. <laughs> now I can't unsee it though. Uh, I had to give my Frizen Institute lecture because, like, I got a grant from the Frizen Institute for my thesis, and I had to give it to the board and show them, like, you know, what I was doing with their money. And I give this talk, and first off, I walked in there. Todd didn't tell me, like, hey, this is like a black tie affair. <laughs> I just rolled in with, like, mismatched socks and, like, a, fl- a flannel shirt. And then somebody, I was, like, putting my jump drive in the computer, and this lady's like, oh, look, Todd, you got a tech guy. And he was like, no, that's my student. <laughs> and I just, like, was disappointing already. <laughs> and then I got in there, give my presentation, which I always, like, nail, and then I do it. But at the end of it, Frizen's like you were, and like my thesis was dope and he just at the end of it just he's like are we this I can't have this like we need to have more practical experiments done in archaeology and I was like what's more practical than my thesis is like what I was thinking in my head and then he was like we need to have and then the man just pulls out of his like old man uh, Carhartt jacket pocket the points that he used to stab elephants with with atlatls and he's like we need to use these and and throw do practical experiments like throwing atlatls into elephant carcasses and then like I'm just and he going on for like 20 minutes like an old man rant 
And I'm just looking at Todd, like, what do I do? And then he's just like, puts his finger up like, uh, uh, and just, you know, he's kind of let an old guy just talk and he's going and going. And then like, I ended it with like, well, like the Institute is like giving me money to do this. If you want to give me money to throw these into an elephant, by all means, please do. <laughs> like, what, like yeah. what, what do you want me to do? And then I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, he's just an old man rambling about my thesis. And then Todd texted me later and he's like, hey, man, uh, just so you know, you got frizzed. You took it like a champ. Sorry, I totally like your thesis. I guess frizzed doesn't. <laughs> and I was just like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I didn't realize, but apparently he just like will randomly pick a thesis or a presentation that he doesn't like and just chew it apart for 20 minutes. But I was, I was like, oh, <laughs> whoops. That's what I mean. That's what you earn as being uh, a yeah, grand moff frizzing or anything other places, you know? That's true. Rich pulled me aside afterwards, too, and he was like, Hey, man, frizzing doesn't just chew anyone out. So that means you got him thinking. <laughs> I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Devin, my question to you is uh, At Lalo's or Bose, which one's better and why is it Bose? <laughs> Uh, we should probably answer. Oh yeah, we can't answer it in this segment, but we can answer it in the next segment when we talk about bows. Welcome back. This is episode nineteen, uh, bows and hose of uh, a life in ruins podcast. We're interviewing Devin Devin Pettigrew at this moment in time. <laughs> Uh, uh, Devin, we were just asking you before. Uh, <laughs> That's so lame, but so funny. <laughs> All right, I'm muting. I'm muting. Um, <laughs> we finished that last segment talking about David set you up for a, a question about uh, bows versus atlatls uh, or ah. Uh, Atlatls, or you know, it's like Pensacola. Okay, so what do you use currently in your experiments to test uh, some of the stuff you mentioned in um, the first session and kind of the second session? Do you use bows? Do you use at a words? Yeah, I use uh, I use both. I use bows. Um, my bows are mostly modeled after Southeastern Native American bows like Taba, Cherokee, Yuchi bows. So they're, you can imagine a rectangle that just decreases slightly from the center in width and thickness. And they're very simple and very effective. Uh, I use those and I use atlatls with a number of different sizes and types of darts. So uh, I've got heavy darts, I've got light darts, replica darts from darts that were preserved in the southwestern U.S. Um, so the idea is you get this range of point types and this range of velocity energy with these different weights of projectiles. And uh, from that, if, you, if you're able to build a, a large enough table, you can pull out some statistical inferences from that. So this is very different from the, the projectile experiment that David did, which is what you might call a controlled experiment where you're doing it in a laboratory, you're controlling for the various attributes of the, the projectile and the projecting mode and what the target is. So there it's usually done to look at 
impact damage where you can really carefully control like how fast the projectile is going, what it hits. What I did and what Frizen did and what Frizen was yelling at David that he should have done or should do <laughs> was what you might call a naturalistic experiment where you actually go out and shoot close replicas of these projectile weapons into something like an animal carcass. I'm going to nerd out real quick if that's okay and ask, do you change the base of the points? Do you, do you have different types of uh, bases that you use to, you know, half the, the sinew, if it's side notch, corner notch, whatnot, do you use a, a similar base type across your uh, experiments? I've got a range of projectile point types that are modeled after uh, actual artifacts. So they come in many different forms. The kinds that people in the Southwest, what we, what we generally refer to as the basket maker people, free Pueblo and under farmer forgers in the Southwest, they were using these corner notch points that appear actually throughout the, the United States before it was the United States in the late archaic period. So that's what they're, they're using with these small darts. And then early on, you know, we have the Indian points, Clovis points, agate basin points. So I'm really testing a huge range of of point types. I, I do have to add, like for our audience to know, like how serious Devin is about otlottles and bows, is that I, I've gone hunting with you. We went elk hunting once together, and I'm the Native American out of the pair. And Devin was using a Cherokee longbow that he made himself. <laughs> and I was using a recurve bow that I bought at a store and Devin's using like his own arrows. Like he, he went nuts. And then Devin also, cause Otlatl hunting in Colorado is illegal. Devin is actually part of, is it like a campaign to try to get Otlatl's legalized? Cause I remember a couple, like a month or two ago, you had to go to a meeting of hunters to talk about making Otlatl's legal to hunt with. And you were also emailed, Steve Ranello on the Meat Eater podcast about it, and he answered your question on his podcast. Yeah, I went to the DNR. I just petitioned the commission to legalize outlatles. Department of Natural Resources. Ah, so they so I went and presented my petition why I think outlatles should be legal to hunt with. They're not legal in Colorado. They're legal in some states, just a few states, uh, Missouri. Kansas, Arkansas, Kansas, Nebraska, not Arkansas. No, so I, I, I've never been able to legally hunt with an outlatl, uh, which I find disappointing. Um, <laughs> but you know, as as I expected, their their response. Actually, I was surprised because there were some of the commission were really into it, and then it just got shot down. Uh, so you know, modern hunters, most of them just they don't know much about the weaponry. But they, they assume that it's not um, going to be a moral to hunt with. Because they don't want the animal to suffer, right? Like that's the big thing is like they see it as like if you hit an animal with an otlatl, they think it could possibly survive and wound that animal and make its life miserable, correct? Yeah, that's generally you don't want the animal to suffer more than uh, it has to when you, you hunt it. So... Uh, so they, I guess they're working from a series of assumptions, mostly that we're dealing with spears and they visualize like a javelin and they're, they're thinking about this again in that technological advancement notion of Western culture that 
we transitioned from spears. Once outletals arrived, people said, wow, that's amazing. I need, I obviously have to have that. And they switched to that. And then the same thing with the bow. Uh, so let me so just I shoot this missing. goat's leg off with a 30, 30 and make it more humane. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. Clearly as any, anybody who's hunted enough knows, even if you have taken the time to practice, you're absolutely sure that you have to, you know, make a perfect shot. Mistakes still happen. And then there, you have people that just, they don't take the time to practice. So it still right. happens with modern weapons. Of course. My, my thinking is if people are going to go out with an atletal and try to hunt a deer or an elk, they're probably going to be taking it pretty seriously. And you were telling me you're in the same group message with our academic father, you were telling, you were giving us like success rates of African Bushmen. Yeah. Hunting success rates are really surprising. Uh, and they're, they're highly variable, but if you look at the success rates of modern hunters with, uh, guns and compound bows or whatever they are, compound some things, we can talk about that later. They're extremely low, especially in Colorado. So I modeled it as hunter per day success rate. And in Colorado, it's less than 1% with a bow to about 1% to 2% with a rifle per day going out hunting. And in some cases in Africa, it was it was over 80% success rate. It's not a fair comparison for a number of reasons. This is per hunter night. So they're actually going out at night with spears, javelins, and they're hunting from blinds and killing big ungulates, uh, zebras, wildebeest, that sort of thing. But they're highly successful at it. And with bows, it was more like 25% success rate, but it's, it's highly variable, but it's surprising that it's generally better or at least on par with uh, modern hunting success rates. That's, that's super interesting. <laughs> I do have to mention, like Devin sent us this text and it was out of nowhere. And Dr. Bamforth just responded, thanks, Devin. I always wanted to know that. And it was just like radio silence <laughs> for a bit. We're just like, what? <laughs> You can imagine me like excitedly texting like this will really impress him and it's like getting that back and being like, what? Okay. Doug, <laughs> Doug is like very similar to Bob Kelly. I found where it's like, you know, he doesn't impress very easily, but when he gives you that like nugget of, of, uh, uh of acceptance, like you just, you just gravitate towards that. Cause yeah. I remember at field school, Devin, you made a really nice point and Doug's like, Oh, you did a really good job at that. And you just like beamed up. <laughs> when your advisor says something yeah. nice about you you're like <laughs> i, I yeah. gave a presentation for my thesis at the field school and uh doug talked to me afterwards like that was really well done you had that really well organized like the steps you took to present your argument that was just phenomenal and i was just like grinning ear to ear like i just scored my first touchdown in high school i was like oh my god i'm not totally worthless after all hang on um stop, quit dodging the question though why is the bow better <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can talk about that. I mean, I yeah. So, what's interesting, actually, if you look at these three technology projectile technologies, javelins, bows, atletals. Um, of course, there are more that we're not thinking about: blowguns, uh, rabbit sticks, stone slings. But we'll just mm -hmm. stick to these three. Yeah, slings. What's interesting is that if if the projectile impacts the animal, they're all about they're all pretty similar in uh, how they, they penetrate, you know, lead to the death of the animal. So they carry 
comparable amounts of energy or they can be made to carry comparable amounts of energy. There's a huge range of variation within these weapon systems. So that's something to consider. With the bow, it's going to be, it's a weapon that stores energy outside the body, unlike the, the javelin or the atlatl where you're throwing, making a throwing motion. Uh, with the atlatl, you have this, this lever assist, right? And most people have thought that it, it allows you to impart more power on the dart. Actually, it's probably more about control controllability oh, okay yeah and the ease with which you feel the weapon and learn to feel the weapon effectively so you can have a larger uh, part portion of the population being able to effectively feel the weapon and to hit smaller targets with more consistency with the bow you're drawing it back it's storing energy in the limbs and then you release so you can imagine that the consistency of these projectile weapons just that's really what's increasing over time. The other thing that's increasing is velocity. Mm-hmm. So darts aren't more heavy, aren't more uh, powerful than javelins, even though they're going a little bit faster. They're they're not as heavy as javelins. Sure. And then arrows, it's the same way. They're they're going way faster, but uh, they're not nearly as heavy as as little darts. And then you have overlaps in energy, size, velocity in all these weapons. How was that? No, that was that was beautiful. So you've created like I'm gonna say you segue into this, created an Instagram at AR dot whatever, you know, the A word. So we we say we generally say atlatl, it's an anglicization, you know, anglicized version of the Nahuatl. Because to say it that way, atlat, it just doesn't really flow well. I'm going to, I'm going to be real. Like I'm all about being culturally sensitive and, 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 you know, an anthropologist, but there's too many consonants in that word. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you have an Instagram, um, (laughs) uh, how, how has, um, your audience received or engaged with you as you've posting some of these videos? Cause you post like, you have a really nice high speed camera, and you, yeah. you kind of post a, a, lot of, a lot of information to these folks. Are they actively engaging with you, asking questions? Yeah, there's there's been uh, three or four individuals that have messaged me. Does Caleb Welch message you? No, he does not. Oh. I got a message from a, a gentleman from California just the other day that makes, he does really exceptional replicas of stone tools, projectile points. So cool. he's one of the, the flint nappers, one of the few modern flint nappers who's actually trying to make, he's actually trying to replicate the method that went into making the stone points instead of just making like some piece of art. That's usually yep. what you see. So he showed me some of the stuff that was really cool. And we might do a trade and I might get some projectile points from him. Um, people were were thrilled with the, the slow motion video. I need to do more than that. Yeah, they didn't really post a lot of questions. When people do post questions, it gives me ideas about what I can post on. Yeah. It's really helpful. I've seen a lot of people like come out of nowhere, like trying to do like the Instagram science stuff. Um, I guess like using me and Amy's like type model and Mark's model, but like yours are top notch. And I just wanted to tell you that on air because I was, every time you post one, I stop and read it. You and Aaron's both. Yeah, it's good. Appreciate it. I was on a Paleo Planet forum for several years doing out little stuff on there. So 
I have a little bit of background. But what is that? Now old school technology. Paleo Planet, it was a forum in the uh, in the early 2000s for you know people who wanted to nerd out about ancient technology. Oh. Well, well, it's an internet that. forum. That's like a... Do, a, do you know what an like internet forum room. is? <laughs> yeah. We're talking about manuals here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. <laughs> With like bright green lettering and black background. And everyone has like an emoji, as an animated emoji as like their picture. And yeah. like on their profile, it plays Green Day. <laughs> you, have, uh, you have to sign in on no, dial-up. <laughs> Oh, I, I was, my profile was the Warrior Yeti. I started when I was a late teen, so I was really super nerdy. I just spit up water all this. over my fucking <laughs> desktop when you said that. It's a I had a name. great emoji for it, too. Thank you. <laughs> so it's like a cooler with a bunch of weapons on it? What? The Warrior Yeti? No, it's a Yeti. That's <laughs> no one get that? Jesus. Like the Yeti cooler? <laughs> god damn it, Devin. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> also, before we end, and I guess touching on my admiration for you, uh, we... That sound is weird. Um, I think you're a cool dude. We love you. <laughs> the, um, we love you. The, <laughs> watching you and Donnie just two grown men that are taller than me and older than me just nerd the fuck out over stone tools and atlatls yeah. for hours made my trip. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. You guys were like, oh, but like, look at this one. Oh, no. I never thought of that. And it was like, it was awesome. <laughs> Donnie's like, do you guys have some wider ones so you can like kill something to death with it? Like what? You're like, yeah, I have this one so I can go down a hole and hook it out and just whop it in the head. It's like, who thinks of this? Yeah, and I was like, what is this at, Lattel? And you're like, oh, that's actually from um, the, you know, Pridmosti site in the Czech Republic. It's it's the second model that I've made. The first one didn't work well. And I was like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> it's Mesolithic yeah, you know, in origin. <laughs> it's really nice to meet somebody like that because most of the time you're out, like, if you're out doing an ad demo or something, people are walking by like, oh, that's pretty neat. But it's the it's the uh, 12-year-old boys that are just, you know, all about it. It's like, you know, am I, I'm basically a 12 year old boy. So it's nice to meet, you know, another grown adult that has your same interests. Like, uh, that's true. Maybe we can get Mackenzie Corey to study your habits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on that beautiful, beautiful bombshell from Carlton. Thank you for joining us today, Devin. We always ask this for all guests that come on here. If given the chance, would you still choose to live a life in ruins and make those ruins and replicate those technologies? Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, thank you for joining us today, Devin. We really appreciate it. And for our listeners, we just interviewed Devin Pettigrew, a PhD student at CU Boulder, studying ancient weapon technologies and ancient weapons ballistic research. Thank you. And we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer.
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Bows get hose. Bows and hose. Bows and hose. <laughs> <laughs>